Hello and welcome everyone to the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. Thanks for joining us today on our show. I've always loved the difficult animals the most. Laurel Braitman has a soft spot for animal head cases like Mac, the miniature donkey she raised when she was growing up on a farm in Southern California. I mean, he is absolutely a jerk. I love him. It's like an abusive relationship in some ways. He, he attacks me constantly, but he's also charming. Yeah, well, who hasn't loved a charming jackass at one point or another? But there is a big difference between being difficult and being desperately dysfunctional. In her early 20s, Laurel and her then-husband adopted a Bernese mountain dog named Oliver. For the first six months, life with him was just really easy, and he was affectionate and kind and uh, didn't seem very anxious. And then about six months in, debilitating separation anxiety began to manifest. We couldn't leave him alone. He hallucinated at night. He ate things that weren't food, things like fabric, recycling. And it just got worse from there. Oliver started going nuts when left on his own. He tore up floors and ripped holes in doors. And then there was the time when a thunderstorm sent him into an all-out panic. He pushed the window air conditioning unit out of the way, and he chewed a hole through the metal screen. And then he held the sash open. I still don't know how he did that. And then he jumped out of the house and would not have been a big deal, but we lived on the third floor. Amazingly, he survived that 50-foot fall onto cement. But he never did get over the separation anxiety, despite all kinds of treatments and therapy. Behavior modification and training, hiring a dog walker, Prozac, Valium, massage, herbs, walking him longer, taking him camping, uh, really everything that we could think of and everything that professionals told us to do. And yet, that still wasn't enough. Oliver eventually died of a severe case of stomach bloat. Laurel thinks it might have been brought on by one of his panic attacks. His death left her guilt-stricken and thinking a lot about psychological disorders in animals and how similar those conditions can be to human mental illness, though we haven't always seen it like that. I mean, the whole idea of animals losing their minds depends on accepting the notion that they have real minds to lose, and that was long considered fanciful and unscientific. Well, times have changed And now there is a booming industry devoted to better understanding mental disturbances in animals and improving their psychic well-being. Laurel has devoted herself to studying that whole area, and after Oliver died, she enrolled in the History of Science Ph.D. program at MIT. She wrote a dissertation entitled Animal Madness, A Natural History of Disorder. And uh, now she has followed up with a book for general readers called Animal Madness, How Anxious Dogs, Compulsive Parrots, and elephants in recovery help us understand ourselves. It's just out, and Laurel Braitman and I got together this past week to talk about it. Stay tuned. We ask a lot of animals. Indeed. We want them to be cute. We want them to be loyal and obedient. We want them sometimes to work hard for us. We want them to be tasty in other cases. Is it asking too much that they also be sane? (laughs) Uh, well, we could say the same thing about ourselves, you know. <laughs> um, some days it is. <laughs> but uh, I think, no. I mean, ideally, certainly if we're talking about pets, you know, 
you want them to be sane because ideally you care about their emotional well-being and their mental health. And not only that, but very selfishly, a suffering animal is an animal that makes your life difficult. You know, it's a cat that's peeing on your suitcases and on your bed. Uh, it's a parrot who's attacking tall friends who come mm -hmm. over the house. It's a dog who's scared of stop signs, so you can't take him for a walk. So, um, Is yes, that a real affliction? That is a real affliction. <laughs> I have, wow. I met a dog scared of stop signs. One. Yeah. I don't know if it was the color red, like what he was seeing, or it was the shape. I don't know what it was, but he couldn't approach stop signs. <laughs> well, you just raised a question that I was going to ask sooner or later anyway. Is our primary concern that they just behave? Great question. I mean, a big chunk of this book is is sort of about the parallels between how we judge um, human and other animal mental health. And a big piece of that is is about behavioral control. So you can look at a lot of expectations around um, pet, dog, or cat behavior, for example, and make some pretty easy parallels to, say, women in the 1940s and 50s who were taking psychopharmaceutical drugs to be medicated into a kind of compliance um, that I, I don't think it's that that much of a stretch. In fact, um, many animals are giving these same drugs for very, very similar reasons. And in fact, the only places we still talk about psychopharmaceuticals, like say the antipsychotics or anti-anxiety medications as behavioral control is in the context of prisoners and animals. Sometimes mental institutions. Exactly. Yeah, I should say some, <laughs> some patients in mental institutions uh, might as well be prisoners. Do you know what percentage of psychotropic drugs is administered to animals as opposed to humans? It's actually really hard to tell precisely because so many of these animals are on drugs that we take ourselves, and it's often cheaper to get those drugs from a human pharmacy. So, is that right? I thought yeah. maybe the opposite was true. No. So you can huh. buy liver-flavored Prozac at your vet, <laughs> or you can go to CVS or Walgreens and get Prozac, generic Prozac, Floxetine. So, you know, when it came to me, I first of all, I was so shocked. I was someone who was putting my dog on Prozac. I never thought that would be something I could do <laughs> or was capable of. I always thought other animals had emotions, but the idea that a dog could somehow be so depressed or anxious that they would need pharmaceutical help was just something I'd never seen before mm. and was slightly skeptical of, um, I think for good reason. But it turns out when you care for someone who's suffering, human or other animal, you're going to do anything that you have in your toolkit to try and make them feel better. So I got the Prozac and Valium prescription, and I asked the vet behaviorist where I was supposed to take it. And she said, well, you know, you could fill it here or you could just take it to CVS. And so I went to CVS and I dropped it off and I went and, you know, sat down and waited. And then they called out, Oliver Brayman, Oliver <laughs> Brayman, your prescription is ready. And I went up to the counter and I said, you know, this is this is for my dog. And they were like, well, you know, it's in privacy packaging, like they had taken off mm, like the, <laughs> the stigma. <laughs> exactly. Of depression. Exactly. And I said, <laughs> you know, how, how often does this happen? And they said more, more than you think. Um, so all of those sales are lumped in to the sales of, of human um, psychopharmaceuticals. So I'm not sure, actually, how many drugs, how many animals are on these drugs. But a lot. I mean, a lot. America's a giant industry are consuming the, you know, the antidepressants like Prozac and Zoloft and Lexapro. And, you know, we could go on and anti-anxiety meds like Paxil and Xanax, right? Yep. Antipsychotic meds, Thorazine. tranquilizers, good old-fashioned Valium. Absolutely. Um, and then... 
not just them, but zoo animals. Yes. Lots of zoo animals are doped up, right? Yeah, that's something that shocked me when when I started looking into this, which is that, I mean, it's maybe less surprising in a way that our pets are on these drugs. One in five Americans is now taking a psychopharmaceutical drug. Um, Really? Yes. Yes, some type of psychiatric drug. Holy crap. Um, and increasing numbers of, of children. And so it's in a yeah. lot of ways, you know, we've always given our pets the same medications we take. So in the late 19th century, it was things like rice gruels. You know, we were both taking rice gruels. Castor oil. Yes, exactly. <laughs> really? um, you know, there was recipe books where you could learn how to make um, your own medications for your family. And included in those were pet recipes, wow. recipes for your pets to treat the same sorts of things. So in a lot of ways, this isn't new. You know, it's just that we're now dosing ourselves so much with these medications that we're extending it to our mm. to our pets. By the way, I used a, a regrettable phrase there. I said doped up. No, I don't want to cast judgment on the taking of medications that help with mood disorders and things like that. And if they help us and they help animals in the same way, maybe that's not so bad. No, I mean, I think sometimes if you can't change the stressor um, or you've tried to change the stressor that's stressing, say, a cockatoo in your life, that's that's she's plucking out all of her feathers and um, it's a response to, say, the death of a mate or a move. You had to move um, and the cockatoo doesn't like your new house and you've tried everything else. Um, sometimes the most compassionate thing to do is to give that creature a medication and sometimes you need that, just like in people, they need a medication for a short time so that other forms of therapy can start. So if you have a dog, for example, who's so focused on compulsively chasing his tail that you can't even get him to go on a walk with you or stop and eat, I think medication for that dog can be fair so that they stop that behavior and you can then work with them to learn other things, you know, mm. or, or to distract them or to get them to eat again. Um, so the other thing that I learned actually from a veterinary behaviorist, I spent some time interviewing for the book, a woman named Elise Christensen in New York, is that we don't have uh, inpatient facilities for animals. So if you are a danger to yourself as, you know, a golden retriever or Oliver was actually, if you, if you are breaking windows and jumping out of buildings, a person who is that distressed would already be checked into a facility. And so we don't have those for other animals. So sometimes drugs act as inpatient facilities for animals who are so upset or so destructive. That said, mm. sometimes they're used as a Band-Aid. And sometimes they're, they're given to animals to make them into better displays. And that, I think, is unconscionable. So we shouldn't have to medicate a gorilla or an orca into a life in captivity to, 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 uh, to entertain us. Mm. Um, that, I think, is wrong. So, you know, I just think we need a complicated view of these things. By the way, uh, another person who defends the use of drugs with pets, um, uh, veterinary behavior specialist, I think from, from the Tufts uh, University uh, School of Veterinary Medicine. I forgot his name. Um, Nicholas Dodman. Makes the point that for a lot of people with pets, the alternative to trying to fix their behavior problems is killing them, you know, putting them down. Yeah. David so, Sedaris calls it visiting the euthanasia. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sort of have to have a sense of humor about this. So, speaking of which, did you were you tempted to uh, to call this Animal Crackers your book? Uh, you know, a British editor. I, I we saw the British version, and a British editor suggested that. And I mean, I was. I, I'd rather just have a cocktail party called that because I think it is so funny. But I didn't want people to think that I was poking fun at at um, 
humans or other animals who are suffering. But so you backed off, but that did, did occur to you. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of the animal puns. Uh, yeah, you've got some great chapter titles. Um, animal Farm, P-H-A-R-M. <laughs> I was really proud of that one. <laughs> that was one of the best for sure. And, uh, oh, yeah, did you coin the term bono-boning? <laughs> I did indeed. I'm so glad you noticed. Let's talk TM. about. Um, and by the way, I just want to finish off that one point that the, the veterinarian we were talking about is makes the point that these drugs are saving lives in the case of pets who might otherwise be euthanized. Yeah, I think at last count, I was looking at a humane society statistic. It's five to six million pets are euthanized every year. Um, animals are euthanized, and uh, many for behavior problems. Oh yeah, I mean that's who Most. winds up at shelters. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if if you're a perfect, easy to get along with animal, odds are you you don't wind up at the shelter. Hmm. But uh, uh, getting back to then, how do you pronounce it? Bonoboning. Bonoboning. I want you to tell me the story of Brian the Bonobo. Sure. Brian is a bonobo that lives at the Milwaukee County Zoo in Wisconsin. And when he was a young bonobo, and I don't, we, maybe we should tell your listeners what a bonobo is. A lot of people That's don't, a good point. It's a know. very horny chimp. No. <laughs> um, it is, it is, <laughs> yes, they are big fans of um, all kinds of sexual activity. They're, they're sort of like the undercover great ape. You know, everyone knows about chimps and gorillas and us and right. orangutans. Um, but uh, bonobos, bonobos are great apes too. And they look a lot like chimps. They do. They sort of have like wider, taller foreheads. Mm. They look a little bit like wise elderly humans to me. And they're they're polymorphously sexually active. They love orgies of various kinds, which is why you explain they're maybe not so common in zoos. Exactly, because I think that <laughs> um, zoos don't want parents to have to explain bonoboning to their to their children. Um, you know, the bonobos, they use sex to settle disagreements. Mm -hmm. They um, they use sex before meals just to like, I don't know, get everyone psyched about the meal and sort of their, their little blessing before they sit down to eat. Um, and yes, it's females with females, males with males. Males do something called penis fencing, which is what it sounds like. Um, and uh, yeah, they, they're they're lovely and fascinating and intelligent. And Brian was a bonobo who lived at uh, Yerkes, which is a primate research facility in Georgia. And for disturbing reasons that, uh, I, that I do not understand, he was kept alone with his father um, inside of a cage at Yerkes. His father was a research subject. He was, lived with his father, and his father physically abused him. Um, on probably we can't go into the whys on the air, but it was but sexually, sexually, uh, and is that abuse in the bonobo world? It is okay. It is. They don't engage in sexual violence, and a male bonobo would never do that um, to another young male bonobo. Okay. Also, they would never be alone to males like that. Um, bonobo culture. Another great thing about them is that they're matriarchal, um, and a young male bonobo would not have been separated from his mother. Mm. And he would have had lots of aunties around that were showing him how to behave and protecting him from anyone who um, would beat up on him and learning bonobo social customs and bonobo culture. And Brian was denied all of that. And uh, he developed a variety of really disturbing behaviors. He had crippling OCD. He spun in circles. He clapped. He pulled his fingernails out. Uh, he 
would put his own fist up his rectum until he bled. And it got so bad that Yerkes were, was fearing for his survival. And so they sent him to the Milwaukee County Zoo, where there was an amazing woman who worked until recently. Her name is Barbara Bell, and she was the head bonobo keeper. And there was a really amazing, and still is, troop of bonobos there. And they were led by an elderly couple, Lodi and um, Moringa, who came from the Congo more than 30 years ago. And these two bonobos welcomed Brian, um, along with an elderly female named Kitty, who was blind. And Lodi, who was the male, was basically, you know, one of the troop leaders. And Kitty really took Brian um, in and and tried to help him. And it didn't really work. Uh, he he would need, he was scared of everything. Any time he saw something new, he would fall on the ground and clap his hands. He would spin in circles. He was, he was a miserable creature and he was still hurting himself to the point where he was losing so much blood. They worried he wouldn't live. So the zoo called in a human psychiatrist to see if they could help Brian, a lovely man um, named Harry Prozen. And he took Brian in as a patient, took Brian on as a patient. Uh, put by him the on. way, this guy had no non-human experience that we know. Never, of. never. In fact, he when he first got the call from the zoo, he offered Brian an office appointment. Um, he said, just, Seriously? just bring Brian by. I mean, I think he might have partially been kidding, but he'd also <laughs> never met Obanova. Um, and uh, so, yeah, Looks Brian. It's like a New Yorker cartoon already. <laughs> exactly. Um, but he went to the zoo and, you know, he told me that it, it really wasn't hard to figure out, you know, what was wrong with Brian. And he he felt like a lot of Brian's self-mutilation was a form of self-soothing that had gone awry and that he really needed to restart Brian's whole developmental process. He basically needed to make Brian into something of an infant again, show him that he could trust humans and other bonobos and really give him a second childhood that was far more functional than, than his first. Um, he also put him on Paxil and that stopped his OCD behaviors long enough for him to get a little bit more comfortable and then for them to start other forms of therapy, which were behavioral. Um, he made sure that he was only around bonobos who were really kind to him. So he spent all of his time with Kitty, the elderly blind female, and Lodi, the male. And uh, it, it's just miraculous, I think, what the keepers and um, Dr. Prozen were able to do for Brian. He's now the leader of the troop. Um, so more than 10 years later, uh, he he's fathered a bunch of babies himself. He's affectionate. Uh, he, he likes carrying the, the babies around. He's He's a different bonobo. Wow. But this is exactly the same treatment that Dr. Prozen would have given a human being. Yeah. And he, and he says that. Um, you know, a lot of questions I get are, you know, how, how can we diagnose animals with, without speaking to them? You know, so much of the diagnostic process in people is a verbal one. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not actually sure that's true. You know, particularly when you look at children, mm -hmm. we, we diagnose children all the time. Uh, who can't or won't speak to us. And oftentimes, just because you ask someone in therapy why they're doing what they're doing or to explain their feelings, they, they can't tell you. I mean, that's been the case in most of my human relationships, frankly. You know, you can ask someone that you're, you're dating or that you're married to, you know, how they're feeling. It doesn't mean they're going to tell you or that they even know. <laughs> You've so, been there, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, so we really do depend on observation so much. Yeah. Um, and 
and frankly, you know, before the early 1900s and the sort of dawn of the Freudian age, a lot of, you know, it wasn't called psychiatry then, but a lot of what we would now consider psychiatry was done just by observation. And people were looking for signs like startle responses or increased heart rate, um, other more physical signs of, of disorders of mood. We definitely can't ask animals if they're feeling better or whether they've just been medicated into compliance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so we may not know that the therapies really made the animal happier. Well, that's where you, this stuff is really individualized. So just like with people, you know, you have to know someone's normal in order to understand their abnormal. So in the case of, say, a pet that you live with every day, I actually think your assumptions about their emotional state are usually pretty valid mm. because you spend a lot of time with them. So, you know, if if your beagle has suddenly seemed depressed after, you know, the, your other beagle died, for example, you know what the thing, the event was that set them down the path to, say, not eating or playing or wanting to go on walks. And so six months later, when you get a new puppy, maybe they're kind of annoyed by the new puppy, but they're suddenly going on walks again. And, you know, they've roused themselves enough to defend their food bowl. I mean, you can say that that's... That's, that's a positive change. Like whether or not that beagle is like happy in the way that we're happy. I mean, I have no idea. It, all of this is is projection, but doesn't that doesn't make it invalid? Mm. What's remarkable in uh, reading the history of attitudes toward animal behavior that you um, retell in your book is how long it took us to get to a point where we started exercising what a lot of people would call almost common sense judgment. Um, you know, there was the famous set of experiments by Harry Harlow of the University of Wisconsin, uh, psychiatrist. Was he a psychologist or psychiatrist? Um, psychologist. Experimental psychologist who did the famous research with young rhesus monkeys deprived of any contact from birth with their moms. And guess what? They were miserable. Miserable failed to develop. Right, right. But, you know, how remarkable. I know. Um, there's the story of, um, you know, a much more recent story of a gorilla named Gigi in here, in your book. Yes. Gigi was being picked on by a bullying male named, what was his uh, name? Kit. Kit. And, well, Gigi started acting out herself or acting, you know, off, right? Yes. And they tried all kinds of things. They gave her Paxil and Xanax, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally... Amazingly, when they removed this bullying male, she got better. <laughs> yeah. Why are we so freaking dense when it comes to extending what would be obvious in the case of humans to, to animals? I mean, that's a that's an age-old question, I think, because it makes a lot of our life inconvenient. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because we're actually not bad at extending the capacity for emotions to certain animals. Mm. I mean, most people who have pets are very confident their pets have emotions, but they may not want to think about the same thing in the, you know, sea lion who's, uh, you know, dancing in front of them in, in the show at, at SeaWorld or the orca or the chicken sausage. Um, you know, I think... In a, in a lot of ways, selective blindness serves us. It, it helps us get through the day. And I, we do this with human rights all the time. Um, you know, it's almost too much to hold sometimes. That said, there's so many small things that we could do um, to make the world a more just place for humans and non-humans alike. And I, I think I think it's a human rights issue. I think it's an animal rights issue. I think those, are, those things are exactly the same. Um, our food system is broken. Um, the fur industry is broken. We we shouldn't have to torture animals into um, 
into compliance with a food system that's making all of us ill, frankly. Um, that said, uh, you know, I'm not a vegan. I'm not, I'm not even a vegetarian. Oh, me neither. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with eating animals. And, um, you know, I, I was trying to explain this the other day, but really, I think if I'm able to live a free range life and have a lovely organic diet and make my own decisions and have a rich social life and then I die, I really wouldn't mind if someone ate me. Uh, uh, would you mind in the prime of your life being called into a shoot where you are then, you know, stunned and decapitated? That, w- that I would mind. You probably wouldn't want that, yeah. That I, wouldn't, <laughs> that I would mind. I'd, I don't want to live in an apartment that's like so small I can't turn around. <laughs> and I'm forced to eat my friend's arm out of boredom, you know. I, I, that's not the life I want. Doesn't sound good. No. no. Here's another sad animal story that you can tell us. Uh, the story of Tip the Elephant. Oh, yeah, sure. Tip was the first publicly owned elephant of New York City which is an interesting thing. Most people don't even know that um, there were publicly owned animals at one point. Uh, Given to the city by a circus guy. A circus guy, yeah, actually who had made a fortune by selling horses uh, to the U.S. cavalry. Um, and then he, he took those proceeds and he started some zoos that had all, uh, excuse me, circuses that had all kinds of performing animals. And Tip was one of those animals. He he was uh, an Asian elephant. And... Forpaw, his name, made a huge... Adam Forpaw, yeah, the made, circus man. Exactly. Yeah. He made a huge show of giving this animal um, to the city of New York, and thousands of people came out. There was a huge parade um, to meet Tip and then follow him on foot through the city up to Central Park, where the, the just newly constructed elephant house was going to be. And he went into the elephant house, and I think for the first two to three years, life was pretty uneventful for Tip. And then Tip started to get really violent, and he made a few attempts on his keeper's life. And what's so amazing about this, I think, is that this was this was front page news in the New York Times. This was uh, 1880s. And... Uh, Tip began to get really famous for his um, supposed madness, his purported madness. And, you know, do I think Tip was insane? No. I mean, I think (laughs) Tip was frustrated. He was chained. His tusks were chained to the floor. He had no social uh, life to speak of, which for an elephant is probably a punishment worse than death. Um, he he drank wine um, and water out of a hose. I mean, he just didn't have a good elephant life. Um, but he finally uh, made an attempt on his keeper's life that was so extreme that a trial basically was held to decide if Tip was guilty of his crimes and, and what should happen to him. And a group of park commissioners and others came together to decide if Tip was basically m- smart enough um, to be planning these attacks mm. or... To be malicious. Yes, or whether or not he was insane. And I think... This is fascinating because in a lot of ways we would say this was backwards, like how they were treating this elephant. In, an- in another sense, this shows that people had so much more respect for animal agency. You know, it's a little bit like the insanity plea, which is, you know, are you are you coherent with, enough with people? Like, were, are you, were they going to let him off the hook if he was judged to be insane? That's a very good question. I don't know. Um, but I do think they, they probably would have treated him with more compassion. Mm. But he was found guilty. He was, of, yeah, found guilty. Of attempted homicide and, and yeah. poisoned, right? Yeah. Cyanide. Yeah. 
in big, a big spectacle. Yeah, yeah, thousands of people came came to see him die, and he was so smart. I mean, they tried a bunch of things. They tried to give him carrots laced with cyanide, and um, the American Museum of Natural History. They really wanted at this point. You know, there were very few elephants who had ever been. Uh, kept alive in the United States. So scientists really wanted to study the bodies. And so the American Museum of Natural History really wanted to get him, his body to be put on display. And so they were agitating uh, for him just to be shot right on the spot, which was uh, probably would have been more compassionate. But eventually he succumbed to a big pan full of bran with, with poison in it. Mm. And he died. And, and in fact, he did go to the American Museum of Natural History and he is still there. He, meaning his bones. Um, yes. Yeah. And his hide. His hide. Which you have seen. Yes. Yeah, his his bones are tucked up under the eaves on the top floor of the American Museum of Natural History. Wow. And then there was Topsy, another elephant that had been owned by the same Adam Forepaugh, right? Yeah. Who was abused by her keepers. And, you know, the ways they abused elephants, pretty, pretty terrible stuff. And still do in some cases. Still do in some cases. I just happened to watch just two nights ago the HBO film Apolo- An Apology to Elephants. Oh, yeah. It talks about some of the traditional training methods with this hook yeah. that is inserted into their ears or their, you know, really painful kinds of training methods. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Topsy um, had had enough at some point and killed uh, one or more of her trainers, keepers, yeah. and she too was uh, condemned to death. Yeah. Yes. I mean, history is littered with elephants who, who've been killed for their crimes against humans. And this, this one had the distinction of being uh, executed by Thomas Edison, Yeah, demonstrating the dangers of uh, alternating current, which he was opposed to. He was yeah. fighting a, a business war with uh, Westinghouse. Uh, Edison was in favor of, of direct current, and Westinghouse is in favor of AC, alternating current. And Edison killed this elephant, electrocuted it, made a movie about it, which he then commercialized, right? Yeah, he was hoping that people would think that it was so dangerous. If it could have electrocuted an elephant, why would they want that in their homes? Of course, the that's the kind of power we all have now. Yeah, I think it it actually may have worked in the opposite <laughs> way, which is this was so powerful, it killed an elephant, I want that. <laughs> Just like tells you some weird things about humans. It was actually more practical in a lot of ways. But yeah. again, the idea that these elephants were somehow to blame when they had been kidnapped, yeah. tr- you know, thrown in a small box, crated and brought over here and then to live a life of, you know, captivity and just, you know, they were manacled, they were pushed around, they were often beaten and otherwise abused. Yeah. If that's madness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think, well, first of all, you know, Insanity is 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 a deeply deeply subjective term, and and sometimes you know losing it and and trying to kill the people responsible for hurting you, or at least trying to escape and maybe accidentally hurting someone and trying to change your circumstances. I mean that can be the most sane act of all if you were living um, in a topsy turvy world in in which you're being hurt. I mean you you can't pathologize that kind of behavior. Um, and that's yet, that's yet we it. Have. We have. We continue to. You know, we have. We we do it in humans a lot. Um, but but I do actually think some some elephants can go mad. I, I think that elephants can be mentally ill. Um, even elephants who've had a, a lovely life. This book for me is not just about the ways in which um, humans torture or hurt other animals or keep them in terrible conditions and then they lose their minds. But it's also about the fact that, you know, yes, you're, you're more likely to develop mental illness if you're living in a trying situation. But lots of us 
are not living in trying situations and, and we develop problems. Or, you know, you can have two elephants who both have lives. Like Tip, there were elephants around Tip. There were elephants who had Tip's life. There were elephants in Tip's, that circus that he came from, that walked on tight ropes and that rode tricycles. And yet they never had a break. Like they never tried to kill the people around them. They never, um, they never quote unquote went mad. And so, so what is that? I mean, you know, we, we see this often in humans, you know, we'll, we'll see two soldiers that are both deployed to the same place. They both suffered, they survived terrible IED explosions. They come back and one person has such debilitating PTSD that they, they can't function and, and someone else is fine. Um, so the differences between us as individuals are, are often quite staggering and that extends to, to non-human animals. Um, and that's why I do talk a fair bit about pets, because living with us is a pet's natural environment. Um, oftentimes, you know, a cat can live in a fantastic situation and still, you know, begin to pluck all of her hair out. Um, it's, it's a mystery what sets some of us down the path to madness and others of us not. On the other hand, you make the point that even our beloved dogs lead a life that is very, very limited, in which they only get to be full-fledged dogs when we allow them to for a brief time during the day, you know, yeah. usually when we're done with work and before dinner, you know, they get the walk or something. You've got a great passage in the book. Um, you want me to read that paragraph? Yeah. Why don't you read it? Sure. Most urban and suburban dogs are only encouraged to be themselves for a small fraction of the day. In my neighborhood, just outside of San Francisco, the early evening, right before sunset, is that fraction. You can feel the collective wags of thousands of tails the expectant panting at the door, the anticipation of the click of the leash on the collar, and then the overwhelming joy of going out. Out! They flood the sidewalks around my house with their pent-up frustrations, pissing and smelling and dragging their people along behind them like water skiers. At the park, the humans stand around, tossing balls or chatting idly, or calling their dog off another's rump. A half an hour or an hour later, it's back to the house for dinner, some petting, maybe some television with the humans, and then bed. But this is not enough time for dogs to do dog things, even if they get to do it in the morning, too. So that's kind of sad, too. Even the animals we love the most, and we obviously put a lot of effort into making their lives good, still don't really get to do what they want to do very much. <laughs> yeah, but I th I think it's a function of both of our lives together, because yeah. I actually think we're we're not being functionally ourselves um, either. And by functionally, I mean it with a K. There, there's a German expression, functionless, which is about an animal being able to express their animalness. Um, so like a bat being able to use their sonar or a cheetah being able to sprint at full speed or I don't know what. I, or in your case, what would it be? Good question. Probably um, making out or eating hummus <laughs> or <laughs> swimming. <laughs> Or all three at once. <laughs> all three ideally together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously I didn't prepare an answer for that question. Um, but yeah, so I think, you know, we are not getting the exercise we need. You know, we are cooped up in offices. Most people actually would want to be walking with their dog most of the day or hanging out or throwing the ball. Um, but we're not, you know, we're, we're seated, um, often and we're staring at screens. Um, or even, you know, now I go to the dog park and look around and people are on their phones even there. I mean, even, even a dog walk now is not a sacred space where you're not just sort of like furtively checking your email while your dog is sniffing a hydrant. Um, so I, I think this is a function of our lives also. Mm. 
You taught a class called Dogs and How We Know Them. Indeed. Was this uh, during grad school? This was, yeah. At MIT? At Harvard, actually. At Harvard. Was there any trouble getting that class into the curriculum at Harvard? Well, that's a funny thing. I I wonder (laughs) if there's any students listening to this right now. But um, I was actually a teaching fellow, so it's sort of like Harvard's way of saying – teaching assistant, but they, of course, need a better term, <laughs> a fancier way of saying that. And uh, yeah, it was it, the class was only supposed to, it was the first, Harvard's first ever class on dogs, and it was in the history of science department. And the class was only supposed to have 20 people in it, and 120 people signed up. And so I ended up teaching, like, I don't know, maybe 50 students. And it was really funny. Like, I showed up to the first day, and, um, you know, this is Harvard, so so even the athletes are Excuse me for saying that. Uh, I was a college athlete uh, with uh, are really smart, you know. But I showed up and I had literally like, the entire baseball team in in my section, and uh, they were so excited. They were all seniors. It was like senior spring, you know, and they they were so excited to take dogs class. Um, and uh, some of them actually like. I'm not sure if they failed, but it did not go so well for everybody because I think they thought, oh, this is going to be... going to be a gut. Yeah, like, this is going to be fun. <laughs> We're going to talk about dogs. And it turns out, you know, dogs have lived with us for 15,000 years. That's a lot of material to cover. Um, so what kind so, of material did you assign? Well, it was in the history of science department. So we read a lot about the ways that dogs have stood in as proxies for humans mm. um, in all kinds of uh, different corners of the history of science. And we also looked we looked at dogs of war. We looked at um, shifting traditions around working dogs. Um, it, it was a it was a lot of fun. And mm. uh, my students ended up doing just like the most amazing, amazing projects. All, all about all different kinds of dogs. It was great. I'd love to do it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you said it was the first ever dog class at Harvard. Um, but Harvard was the home of behaviorism. Um, yes. B.F. Skinner. That was one place where a whole idea of animals as empty-headed mechanisms. Yeah, automatons in a lot automatons, of ways. Automatons, yeah. Sort of um, blindly responding to environment. Yeah. And and then, of course, you know, rejecting the soft-hearted notion that animals are feeling, thinking creatures like us. Yes. Which we talked about history before. I mean, this is something that's often blamed on Descartes as having started it. I can't believe yeah. he could be solely to blame for it. No way. But and inf- for yeah. hundreds of years, it was considered more rational to view animals that way. That was the default position. Yeah, and in some corners, that's still the case. But I think, thankfully, it's changing. And in a lot of ways, I think that what we're seeing is a return to late 19th century ideas of other animals as fellow thinking beings. Like um, when I started this research, I I read a lot of Darwin, and that's sort of where the book starts in a lot of ways, is um, with his and his colleagues in the Victorian period, they're thinking about animals, because in so many ways, it was so similar to where we are now. You know, we might now be putting dogs in MRI machines and saying, look, here's proof mm. of their emotional response. Mm-hmm. Um, but Darwin and his, a few of his compatriots uh would have said it without the MRI machine. They loved their dogs. They loved their pets, didn't they? They, they had the, they the painter. Was it Landseer who was the oh, yeah, painter the, the, of dog? The dog? The dog painter. Yeah. Um, yeah. And in fact, you know, we now take it for granted that we're more closely related to the great apes, for example. But there was this interesting moment. It was actually a long moment um, in the Victorian period where people thought 
and I think this was part of the reaction against Darwin, is people thought that our closest relatives in the animal kingdom were dogs and horses. Really? Yeah. <laughs> um, which makes a lot of sense. We spend a lot of time at that mm -hmm. point with dogs and horses. Mm -hmm. um, they're good at responding to us. We work together quite well. And so the idea that we could be more closely related to a chimp um, or a gorilla, the, rather than like, say, the noble horse or the loyal dog, um, mm. was, was really revolutionary territory. Mm -hmm. Yeah. To call someone an ape was not a compliment. Yes, definitely. To call them a stallion, on the other hand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're back to the bonobo name. <laughs> um, but you talk about that, that era then, you know, uh, late Victorian period when animals were often um, diagnosed, if I can use that term, with cases of homesickness or heartbrokenness, heartbreak. Mm -hmm. Heartbreak, mortal heartbreak. Yeah, I mean, animals in zoos, there was an ape. A gorilla named John Daniel. Yes, he's a lovely a forlorn, fellow. A forlorn gorilla. Yeah, he was basically the gorilla that taught um, people in the West that gorillas were not bloodthirsty brutes. Before John Daniel, the only reports of gorillas were coming out of Africa were when people were hunting them or trying to take their babies. And so, you know, obviously, if you go up to a troop of gorillas and you're trying to kill them or steal their young, they're they're going to be ferocious. Um, but in reality, you know, they're very um, Pacific vegetarians. So... Uh, John Daniel was taken as as a young baby and brought to London to live inside of a department store. And, uh, in he, the display window. In the display window, yes. And he lived there for a few months uh, very unhappily because all the staff left left him alone at night. And no baby gorilla, just like no, uh, no baby other great ape wants to be left alone, particularly as an infant. And so he would cry all night and then stop crying when the staff came in in the morning. But a, uh, a young woman named Alice Cunningham um, adopted him and basically treated him as a human child. He learned to play the drums. He had tea every day. He put jam on toast. He could draw a bath. Um, and he lived like a, a human child in London. And then, uh, unfortunately, under murky circumstances, got sold um, to Ringling Brothers Circus and was put on a steamship to New York to be a circus exhibit and was housed at Madison Square Garden. And within three weeks um, of arriving in the United States, he was dead. And the papers chalked it up to homesickness, as did a lot of other people. It was probably a combination of, you know, depression and uh, pneumonia. Well, it's funny. I mean, to say homesick or, or heartbreak sounds so old-fashioned, so sentimental, but you substitute the word depression almost equivalent, right? Can we somehow sound more respectable saying that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure what we're going to be calling depression, you know, 200 years from yeah, now, for example. Yeah. So um, mental health diagnoses have always come and gone. So there's been extinctions, you know, no one gets diagnosed with hysteria really anymore, um, or mortal heartbreak. But, uh, you know, probably people in the 19 teens would have laughed if we talked about attention deficit disorder um, or internet addiction or f phobias of flying. You know, probably people had phobias of horse-drawn carriages or of gas lanterns or whatever thing in our in our environment. So um, certainly this isn't to say that, you know, mental illness is not real or something, but but what we call it, those labels are, are, are deeply subjective and they shift um, on, on the winds of popularity. So yeah, uh, People, though, were dying from homesickness at that time. So John Daniel arrived in the United States not long after World War I um, that saw people far from home, often for the first time. And uh, homesickness was, was no small health concern. Um, same with nostalgia. People thought you really could sicken and die from nostalgia. 
Um, these were these were real diseases. When I was about to read the chapter on John Daniel in your book about the heartbroken gorilla, I flipped on the television and on Turner Classic Movies they were showing Mighty Joe Young. Have you ever seen that? No, no, but I've heard about it. I should watch it. I'll watch it tonight. Okay. Um, well, it's about. Well, I'm going to give it away then. I can't give it away. Now you've ruined my question. Well, Mighty Joe Young, let's just put it this way, is about a giant gorilla who's brought to the U.S. Um, to perform. Mm. And it's really sympathetic. He's the hero of the movie. Great. Um, I won't tell you what happens and all of that. But this is some years after John Daniel. But it's like Hollywood was starting to treat a giant gorilla as the sympathetic hero. By the way, at one point he is confronted with a death sentence also. Wow. Uh, for rebelling. You wow. Know? Um, so. Not surprising. I won't tell you any more about Mighty Joe Young. But I just wondered if he was maybe based on some of these other animals we've been talking about. Yeah, quite, quite possible. I mean, what's what's amazing is how full the, all the newspapers were. I mean, a lot of these animals were celebrities. You know, there there wasn't another gorilla around when John Daniel came to the United States. No one had been able to keep gorillas alive in captivity. And so he was huge news. You know, Tip's death was huge news. These were, these were major, major stories that everyone was talking about. And in terms of Hollywood, I don't know if you've read Rin Tin Tin, Susan Orlean's last book. You know, I've heard it was really good, but I haven't read it. It is good. And she writes about um, Rin Tin Tin was such a star because he wasn't in, he was before talkies. And so if you had the, the older Hollywood films could have animal stars because they didn't have to talk. So everyone was on a more equal footing, which wow. I think is really wow. interesting. That's a really interesting observation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as we said, we've come a long way in our view of animals and our similarities, our kinship with animals from, I don't know what we were like before Descartes, but certainly we made it through a period where we increasingly denatured them and made them into machines and, uh, you know, certainly convinced ourselves that there was nothing going on inside at all to a point now where uh, this is kind of an age of animalism, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, if you look at the amount of energy we put into our pets, the amount of time and money. If you look at books, all the books, if you look at all the YouTube videos, <laughs> how much of our time? There's a whole TV network, Animal Planet, and, and the list goes on. Uh, and a lot of it is hyper-sentimentalizing, right? Yeah. Idealizing of animals. They're like us, but they're better, right? They're <laughs> innocent. They're perfectly innocent. In fact, to say that an animal is evil or an e animal is actually really bad doesn't make any sense in, in the current view. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I disagree with that heartily. So you can have a bad animal? I mean, I think some animals are jerks. And I, I think that we need to extend them the, the option. Uh, that, you, that was very mild, though. Well. I mean, a lot of humans are worse than jerks, right? Okay. I mean, I don't know what I can say <laughs> on there here. <laughs> Go ahead. Say it. I mean, I think some animals are assholes. And and I think to say that they they are not to say that they're all friendly and sweet and big eyed and round and is not fair and is a, is a form of disrespect. So extending them the ability to be jerks or to be kind to is I think more fair um, to animal nature. They are not cartoon characters, and if we think about them as cartoon characters, we're in a, we're in a mess. Uh, yeah, to balance off all the cute YouTube videos, there is a website called animalsbeingdicks.com. Yes. 
<laughs> I'm a fan of that. You know, I mean, it, it's funny, but it's true. You know, dog shaming too. I mean, it's, it cracks me up. I can look at that for hours. Um, but there's something to it. Uh, I spent a lot of time while researching this book in Thailand, uh, working with people who help elephants come back from from emotional disasters and and making them feel better again. And one thing that a lot of mahouts or the men that would work with elephants would tell me would be that they, you know, they really often hated Western tourists the most because we came and we saw all of the animals as Dumbo. So uh, we thought every elephant was just innocent and, and kind and yeah. cute and lovable, and they're not, and they can be very dangerous, and it depends on the elephant, and it, you should approach an elephant like you're going, you know, a stranger in the, on a street and maybe in a dark alley. Uh, or a you're large going stranger. <laughs> exactly, or you're going over to someone's house for dinner that you're very intimidated by, and so you, you bring an offering. You know, you, you don't show up without a bottle of wine and some flowers. You know, you should never go meet an elephant without, without a peace offering in the form Which, of a snack. Like what? What would you recommend? Um, well, it depends on the elephant where you are in the world, you know, and oh, I only suggest this for a captive working elephant. Handbook. No one should be running up to wild <laughs> elephants and giving them presents. <laughs> um, but uh, sugar cane, pineapple tops, uh, water, um, ear scratches, if, if they're open to it. Um, I, a lot of people are going to be mad at me for saying these things. You know, there is a contingent in the United States, and I, I really empathize, you know, which is all about protected contact, that people shouldn't be um, up close to elephants. And then and, and there's some good reasons for that, which is that if you're not um, – if you have to stay at a safe distance, you can't hit them with a bull hook, for example. Um, so it's safer for you and for the elephant. The problem with that, I think, is when you have an elephant whose main social contact is hu it's humans and they're not part of a herd. And so then saying that, like, we're keeping the elephant safe by denying them all physical affection is cruel. Um, I think in a lot of ways, we've made a lot of creatures into these sort of hybrid human animal hybrids. So they identify more with people than they do often with their own kind by virtue of the fact that we've, we've brought them up as, as, as animally humans. Um, and so the kind thing is not necessarily to like ship them back, you know, to a forest in Africa from whence they came. They have no culture. They're not able to feed themselves. They, they won't be accepted by, by wild animal populations. But also, I don't think they should stay on display and be forced to perform. So in my ideal world, we'd have these kind of like halfway house retirement centers um, for animals to live out their lives in peace where they wouldn't have to be circus acts anymore. Um, but they also wouldn't be shipped off and, and denied the, the attention or affections of, of the species they've come to love. This sounds a lot like a place you spent time at, uh, the Performing Animals Oh, welfare. Performing Animal Welfare Society Sanctuary. Yeah. Pause. Yes, it's a it's just a wonderful place, and I I, uh, I encourage all of your listeners to to go. There's a few times a year where it's open to the public. This is a retirement home for zoo and circus animals. Yes, primarily animals who um, had lives as performers, uh -huh. but but also animals who have not been performers that uh -huh. needed to be rescued from certain situations. And um, the elephant sanctuary, in particularly, is a is a particularly wonderful place. And the elephants there, they they can roam huge distances and they have lovely food um, but most importantly they're able to make friendships um, and have long-standing social relationships with other elephants that they like um, and that, that's I think a particular violence we do to captive social animals which is that we keep them from having healthy social life I mean we we deprive them of stimulation of space to move around in and even of companionship 
Yeah, and I think, in fact, for a lot of animals, the companionship is worse than the space issue. Mm -hmm. Um, Better to have a cellmate than... Yeah, and in fact, I mean, many species, I think, are probably more social than we are. Mm. You know, say orcas and elephants, to name two examples, like a young... Uh, male orca would like never leave his mom to go to college. You know, I mean, we're we're in a lot of ways more independent uh, than a lot of other species socially, and so we may think you know separating an orca from her calf and shipping the calf somewhere else it may be hard for a few weeks, but you know she'll get over it. Uh, but but we don't know what 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 it's like to be emotionally an orca. We we can't even guess at that. And in fact. After the book came out, some information was released about SeaWorld that they were they were actually giving the mother orcas, um, I think it was either Valium or Xanax, after their calves had been removed because they were suffering so extremely. Um, that movie Blackfish. Yeah, great film. Uh, about SeaWorld orca, a specific one who'd had a history of abuse yeah. and violence. Tilikum. Similar, really similar to the animals you described, some of those elephants we talked about. Absolutely. That that movie came out while you were writing this, I guess. Yeah, it did. Yeah. It did. Um, it's a fantastic film. There's a, a an exotic uh, animal vet mm. who you got to know who did some work also at that pause sanctuary, right? Yes, that's in fact how I met him, Mel Richardson. Someone you really, really admired? Yeah, uh, I'm going to try not to cry. He actually died um, a few months ago, so I wasn't even able to give him a book, but I couldn't have written it without him. Uh, I was looking around for something like a DSM for animals, you know, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, and it hadn't it hasn't been written yet, and the closest I yeah. could find was Mel Richardson. Wow. Um, he he was a vet for more than uh, 40 years. He, he treated all kinds of animals. Um, from gorillas to elephants uh, and everybody in between. A lot of companion animals. He was actually Pablo Escobar's veterinarian. I know you said that. I mean, Escobar had some exotic animals, like a lot of drug lords, you know, status symbol to have a tiger or whatever. Yes. Why did Mel Richardson even want to serve a guy like Pablo Escobar? Well, you know, he was really young. And if you're a vet who wants to be good at treating a variety of animal species, Straight out of vet school, he went to work for a place called International Animal Exchange, which is sort of this, um, the Home Depot of, of animals in a lot of ways. Like you could, you could call up and you could order like an ark or something. You could order two of every animal species to build your zoo. And then they would send you a veterinarian and a plane full of animals and you could set up your zoo. So one day Pablo Escobar called International Animal Exchange. There was no zoo in Colombia. He wanted to make a place where people could come see exotic animals. Oh, so this wasn't for his private No, collection. no, he oh. had I have friends in who were Colombian who remember going there as children. Oh, okay. So I got it wrong when I was describing it earlier. Well, I mean he was still a drug lord with like intimidating animals. Right, you know, but he it didn't wasn't necessarily have a tiger prowling around the mansion or something. Well he he, he may have, but uh <laughs> He also put them on display for Columbia. It was I a, see, a I little see. bit of um, Robin Hood sort of a situation. He mounted his first drug plane over the entrance, so you had to walk under the drug plane in order to enter the zoo. And um, when these animals needed medication, he had plenty to give them. Yeah. I actually, I'm not sure any of them were on medication, you know. In a lot of ways, they're probably happier than a lot of animals in American zoos because at least it's warm and tropical there. Mm. Um, and mm. so Mel went down because there, there was no zoo in Columbia. There was no veterinarian that could treat the animals. So they sent Mel with all the animals to to basically set up the zoo. But I see. Mel was young and he was really just learning about different animal species. And he really didn't have a kind of awakening until he'd actually 
actually been at um, the San Antonio Zoo as the head vet there for about 15, 20 years. And he just had enough with the captivity industry. And he became a very outspoken critic um, of, of the animal display industry and all of the things that people going to these institutions often don't know. Um, How about you? How do you feel about animals, you know, basically in captivity for our amusement? Let's face it. That's the usual reason. I think it's deeply problematic. You know, I think um, I have to say, though, that the zookeepers are some of those the most amazing people that I know. It's yeah, really, some of them genuinely love the animals. I mean, all of them. All of them. I, I have never met a zookeeper that their number one priority isn't the welfare of the creatures they're in charge of. And it is hard now to get a zookeeper job in this country. Those jobs are really competitive. You earn very little money. It's often dangerous. You are literally cleaning a poop all day often. They're not glamorous jobs. Um, and, and people work really hard. And I think oftentimes a zookeeper will take a job with the best of intentions. And it's not until a few years in you may realize exactly what you're up against or that um, the upper level decisions about that are maybe budgetary, for example, have effects on the welfare of your charges, but you don't have the institutional clout to change things. So I feel for most keepers and, and I'm impressed by their efforts. The industry itself, I find deeply problematic. You know, it, it's called the, cap the display industry. So um, by definition, those animals need to be seen. It, it's a terrible zoo exhibit if you go and the anim you can't see the animal. Um, but how many animals want to be stared at? I mean, it, it's in most animals' nature to get away from, from stares um, from other creatures. And so just needing to be visible all day is its own stressor, not to mention all of the other things that come with captivity. That's a really good point. You know, it never really occurred to me. I thought of the enclosure, the, you know, the ripping out of their natural environment, the inability to roam freely, um, the lack of companionship, but just the fact that you are unable to hide. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. It's pretty simple. I mean, yeah. all of those other things are, are also stressors. Yeah. Um, you know, that said, I, I should also say, and I, I tried to talk about this a little bit in the book, which is that some animals may like life in a really cushy zoo. Mm -hmm. You know, there may be the giraffe, you know, that would not like to um, have to wander around looking for, for tasty leaves. There might be a giraffe who prefers to be brought her leaves, you know, three times a day and is not particularly fond of exercise and doesn't, you know, want to be chased around by lions or wh whatever the case may be. <laughs> the problem is that, you know, we can't ask animals. We do, we, it's not, this is, there's, there's no informed consent mm -hmm. um, over who, who's, who can be in a zoo and who is not. In it. And I think that's, that's problematic. You know, people who are, are, are pro zoo, you know, whatever that means, but um, usually say that these places are important repositories of biological diversity and that they educate, um, not just entertain, and that the animals are in some sense like martyrs to their to their wild counterparts. And so by seeing these animals, we, we will conserve nature, we go home more educated. And, and I think that's true in some cases. But I also don't buy it because so many animals have been on display now for more than a century, and they are and as we have access to all these amazing nature documentaries now, where we can see animals without actually having to, you know, capture them. Yeah, and I do think that's better. You're actually seeing them in their natural environment. Mm. You're seeing their 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 natural behavior. So, you know, certainly there is a continuum of zoos. Some are worse places to be an animal than other places. Most zookeepers are great. Um, but I just don't think they're a good place, particularly to take a child to, to learn about non-human nature. You grew up on a farm or a ranch, yeah? I did, yeah, in Southern California. So 
animals were a big part of your life. They were, yeah. My parents grow avocados, so it wasn't a cattle ranch exactly, but we had a lot of animals, um, donkeys, ponies, chickens, um, uh, lots lots of creatures. Do you have pets today? I don't. Um, th- on my houseboat, there is a seagull named Murray who's been coming for years. Murray recently um, met a partner. There, there's a, he has a male friend that's, that's now around. Um, How can you tell? Uh, it's a good question. I'm not a bird. I have a really good friend who's a birder who's, who's broken all of this down for me. I, I have to admit, I'm the world's worst birder. I can like, I could like see a parrot and tell you it's a parrot. Um, but the rest of the rest of avian, uh, culture, I'm, I'm really poor at identifying, but, uh, yeah, I'm actually once book tour is over, I'd really like to adopt a dog again. Ideally a dog who is not suffering from separation anxiety, but um, I, I sort of know too much to have a pet right now because I'm traveling so much to, to talk to folks about their animals. Yeah. So you uh, also do something called music for animals? Ah, uh, indeed, indeed. What is it? Well, uh, it's a sort of a sideline. It's, it's a side project of mine. But while I was researching this book, I found a article. It was in a Victorian music publication from the late 19th century called Music for Animals. And it was an article that was basically a rundown of all the concerts that humans had played for other animals in the last few decades of the 19th century. And so there was things in there like, you know, a nobleman hired an orchestra to play for his horses. And um, the elephant that lived in Paris would get an occasional concert of um, classical music. And... Oh, there was, you know, they talked about various Pied Pipers who played for rats and all kinds of creatures. And I just love, I thought, I found the idea so charming. And also, though, I had been visiting a lot of zoos. And one thing that I found interesting in talking to keepers and docents was that, you know, we often ask these animals to entertain us and we very rarely ask how to entertain them back. So we think about, you know, what it would be fun for our pets, but we very rarely think about it. The zoos say, like, how we could get the attention short of just rapping on the glass of the gorilla on the other side of the glass. And so I was meeting a lot of people who spent time in zoos who were telling me things like, well, you know, you should really just take everything out of your purse really slowly and you you should show it to them or you should bring picture books <laughs> um, or uh, you should run back and forth or do cartwheels or take off your shoes and wiggle your toes. There's all kinds of bizarre things to get the attention of other creatures on the other side of the glass that humans don't usually do. Most of us are really boring when we stand in front of a captive animal. Um, We take out our iPhone and we take a photo. We wave at them. I don't know why we always wave, but we do. Um, You know, we sort of nudge each other and point and then we move on. But uh, if you upend the paradigm a little bit, uh, people around you are going to think you're just insane. Um, But you'll you'll get a reaction from the animals. So... um, the gorillas, for example, in Central Park, the Central, um, excuse me, the gorillas at, at the Bronx Zoo in New York, uh, a docent there tells me that their favorite day of the year is Halloween because yeah, uh-huh. adults and kids are dressed in costume. Wow. And so the gorillas are kind of roused to, to come up to the windows and check people out because we look different than normal. So I got interested in that. And so I decided to try and redo some of those Music for Animals concerts. But for animals who we normally make entertain us, because I wanted to know what would happen if a musician, a human musician, rather than playing for a human crowd, tried to play for another kind of, tried to play for another kind of animal. So? 
What did you do? Um, well, the first one was actually for a really surly donkey that uh, <laughs> I grew up with. A concert? Um, yep. This is Mac? Yeah, yeah. Um, he is, he's, talk about animals who are jerks. I mean, he is absolutely a jerk. I love him. It's like an abusive relationship in some ways. He, he attacks me constantly. Um, but he's also charming. And, and he's I, a miniature Sardinian donkey. Donkey. Yeah, he's about the size of like a small coffee table. So Italian music, no doubt. No, in <laughs> fact, country punk. Um, <laughs> He had kind of a rough life, you know, his mom died right after giving birth to him. And, you know, as I said, he's kind of a jerk. And so I thought, well, country would be great, you know, if I could, if I could have a, have a Hank Williams show, it'd be perfect. But he's a little angrier than that. So I thought country punk. Um, and the lead singer for a band in San Francisco, Trainwreck Riders, came down um, to play for him. And it was from sad, you know, I felt really bad because Mac hated it. He ran away. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, he was not. What makes it. you think they would want to hear our music? Well, that's a really good question. It's a good question. <laughs> uh, but I've found that. So what he did like, though, was bluegrass standards. Standards. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, really? yeah. Like, okay. like, like, like old bluegrass. He, he was really into. I bet he was a big hee-haw fan. <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, uh, I brought a band from San Francisco, Grass Widow, um, to wow. play for the Gorillas in uh, in Boston. How'd that go? Great, they they loved it. It was awesome. It was a sort of group, a fierce group of female musicians to play for a fierce group of female wow. Gorillas. What's cool about an animal show is that it's not just about the music. Like they were really into watching the drum kit being set up. Um, so the show really starts long before it would say start for a human audience. You know, they're usually interested in people being there. And, but others have been far less successful. Near here, I, I, I brought a musician, a UK musician, to play for the California Sea Lions at Moss Landing. And that was so sad uh, because it was like watching the world's uh, just most pathetic open mic night. Like. <laughs> This man, his name is Jason Holt, and he's part of a band um, called Spectrum in the UK. Now you're saying he wasn't pathetic, but the audience was just the lousy. audience just they they talked the whole time. <laughs> They're like, okay, Laura, this is this is admittedly a quixotic activity you're you're engaging in here, but uh, I do want to ask you uh, as we end the interview: Is there some music you might recommend for the uh, the animals listening to this broadcast? Oh, fabulous! Uh, Yes, my favorite animal song is called The Animal Song by Michael Hurley. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, we will get to the music in just one moment. But first, Laurel had something to add. Uh, she wanted to correct the false impression, I think implied by my line of questioning, that her book is just one endless tale of animal woe. A lot of times people ask me, you know, Laurel, like, why did you spend seven years researching, like, the phenomenon of animal insanity? Isn't that sad? And actually, to me, it's it's the most hopeful thing I've ever worked on. It's amazing. Like, recognizing suffering in other creatures tends to make humans the most spectacularly wonderful versions of ourselves. Um, people go to such great lengths to, to help creatures around them, wildlife or, or pets. Um, for every person, you know, that puts a, a baby gorilla in, in a box, there's two others who change their whole careers around in, in order to help the gorillas as adults. So I think on balance, there's, there is just so much goodness in, in the recognizing of, of emotional suffering in, in other humans and in other animals. And also, it was so nice to find out that so many of us can recover. 
often with the very same kinds of things. So certain um, psychopharmaceuticals, but also just a change in environment, um, more exercise, if we're social animals, more time with other social animals, um, being able to to be functionally with a gay, you know, the, the best versions of ourselves. Um, and, and I find that all just so deeply, deeply heartening. Um, friendship, it doesn't even have to be with your same species. Um, humans can be therapy animals for other animals and animals can be therapy animals for people and different species of animals can be therapy animals for each other. Goats and racehorses. Exactly. Something I learned from your book. People who raise racehorses, uh, pair them up with goats. Yeah. Like uh, a good racehorse is often, um, you know, easily startled and can be pretty anxious and, uh, can be a little flighty. And one way to calm a racehorse down or any horse really is, is to give them a pet, um, and a friend and a companion. So you, that can come in the form of a pony, but historically that's, that's been goats, rabbits, um, Seabiscuit had a monkey, Lots and lots of animals. I talked to some trainers who use pot-bellied pigs. Wow! But the expression "getting your goat" comes from you know if if your horse is one of those race horses that has a goat friend, if you steal the goat the night before the race, the horse may be too jittery and upset to run well the next day. Really? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, family therapy. Laurel Braitman's new book is "Animal Madness: How Anxious Dogs, Compulsive Parrots." and elephants in recovery help us understand ourselves. I'm Robert Polly, and this has been the 7th Avenue Project. We will be back on these airwaves next week, or you can listen online anytime at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, on SoundCloud, on iTunes, via your mobile device. We are always, what is the expression? Just a click away. If I could ramble like a hound when he's walking down a rabbit trail If I could ramble like a hound When he's walking down a rabbit trail I'd keep my nose in the wind I had radar hearing like the bat, like the bat that flies at night. If I had radar hearing like the bat, like the bat that flies at night, I could hear all those lightning bugs turning up and turning down the summer's light. If I only knew what the wise old owl knows. If I only knew. But that was
all night long Telling folks about my worldly world If I could wallow If I could wallow like the great white whale in the sea, I'd rise, I'd sink low and forever be free. If I could sleep long Like the grizzly, grizzly bear If I could sleep long Like the grizzly, grizzly bear I'd sleep and I'd dream of your gold.